Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everybody to episode 30 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hi, good. I picked up some frozen Cokes on our way here, which feels like a very teenage thing to do, it like is. we used to do in our youth. Yeah, and I couldn't handle it. I got instant brain freeze, yeah. chest freeze. Just... <laughs> Crippled over in pain with one sip. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice thought because it's a hot day, in Mel- well, it is now anyway. Now our it- first taste. Yeah, knowing Melbourne, it'll be raining by the time we've finished recording this. Yeah, but, thunderstorms uh, on the way. <laughs> yes. Anyhow, we have some more uh, wonderful Patreon supporters this week. We do. Thank you and welcome to Jenny, Steph, Stephanie Moon and Abby Melrose. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. And we figured out who Driver Fatigue Awareness Day from we last did. week was. Thanks to Warren in our Facebook group. It's actually Tanika Pintos. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for the support, Tanika. And uh, you should check that cause out too, uh, Driver Fatigue Awareness Day. Look it up on Facebook. It's on April the 23rd. So thank you, Tanika. We've got a big case for you all today, episode 30. As we've said before, we generally try to cover a more infamous case on these sort of mini landmark episodes. And today we're talking about the notorious Mr. Stinky. We said it last week, right? A murderer, a serial rapist whose name that many people will know, but not many people know the full story. But we've got it for you today. It's going to be a tough one, though, a very tough one to get through. There's no way around that. Everything you can think of happens in this case, and that's pretty much your content warning. Sexual assault, crimes against children, graphic descriptions, and animal cruelty. Yeah, and we talked about the GSK parallels in the Coulston case the other week, but they're abundant in this one too, probably more so, and it's truly terrifying. Now, we did a poll on our Facebook group a few weeks back, Chloe, asking if people preferred solved or unsolved cases. And the overwhelming majority, maybe 75, 80% preferred solved, which wasn't a huge surprise in itself. But the insightful thing for me was the reasoning behind that, being that people's interest in how the investigation unfolds and how these criminals get caught. In this case today, it has that element. It has that quality in spades. The way this all goes down is completely fascinating. But we've got a long and dark road ahead before we get to all of that. 
summer of 1965, Ardmona, Victoria, around 2am. Jack heard the guy running through the paddocks, a kind of silent run, like maybe he was barefoot. He could hear him breathing. The prowler was back again. He knew it when the dogs began barking. But the prowler had growled at them, settled them, the confidence of someone who knew dogs. Another farmer, maybe. Jack ran out onto the porch and fired round after round from his 22 rifle into the black night sky. The orange slugs glowing in the dark as they whirred through the orchard at leg height. Was this the same guy who'd been peeping into his neighbour's house, tried to remove their daughter's flywire screen and make his way inside? Jack never saw the prowler, and he never returned, but he could still hear the breathing and the footsteps, bare, silent-moving footsteps. Shepparton is a large inland regional city in the middle of Victoria. It's about 200 kilometres northeast of Melbourne, but back in 1966, it was very much an agricultural town with an abundance of orchards, canneries, farms, and factories. It was a thriving place, a hub, often referred to as the capital of central Victoria. But despite the agricultural blood running through its veins, Shepparton had embraced the popular incoming Californian culture at the time. The broader Shepparton city, brimming with well over 20,000 people in the summer of 66, was now host to a drive-in theatre, bowling alley, hamburger joints, car yards and diners for youngsters to go to and enjoy Coca-Cola. The place was such a large hotspot in regional Victoria It attracted touring acts such as Normie Rowe, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, and home state favourites Tony and the Chantels, popular rock and roll acts at the time. Shepparton had recently opened the doors of its new Civic Centre in 1965, which was built to host many of these popular concerts. It was a bustling time when these acts came to town. The weekends through summer would see Shepparton's population swell even further with the addition of seasonal fruit-picking workers to the area. It wasn't uncommon to see Shepparton become a tad rowdy on these nights, when these seasonal blow-ins butted heads with local youths. And it was against this backdrop one night on Thursday the 10th of February 1966 that the burgeoning Civic Centre in Shepparton was hosting a rock and roll touring show called The Mod Spectacular, featuring Billy Adams, Yvonne Barrett, Roland Storm and The Changing Times. Two attendees to the concert that night, both locals to Shepparton, were 18-year-old Gary Haywood and 16-year-old Abina Medill. Gary Haywood. Gary worked at a local family business run by his uncle Dick. His father Charlie worked there too. It was a panel-beating business, the biggest in the area, well-known and highly regarded. Gary was a tall and handsome 18-year-old young man, and he owned a particularly fine FJ Holden, which he and his younger brother Alan and their father Charlie had restored. Gary had painted it British racing green and added a modified exhaust so it was much louder than standard. The car stood out around town, 
There wasn't any others like it, and Gary was very proud of it. His girlfriend at the time, a 16-year-old local girl named Gail, probably liked his car too. On this day, Gary had finished work and gone to pick up Gail from her workplace to drive her back home. Both Gary and Gail were light on cash. They weren't getting paid until the next day. So a night out at the concert in town was off the cards for them. At least, that's what Gail thought. As Gary dropped her off at her family home in Marupna and backed out of the driveway, Gail assumed as they said their goodbyes, they were both in for a quiet night at home with their families. But Gary had other plans. He'd organised with his mates, Lindsay Lose and Victor Grosdanis, to attend the concert that night. He drove home after dropping Gail off and put his younger brother Alan to work, asking him to wash the car before the lads headed out after dinner. After having a bite with his family and combing some lemon juice through his hair in the hopes of getting a mild streaked bleach look, Gary headed off for the night, leaving his younger brother Alan, who he often took with him, at home on this occasion. Abina Medill Around on Maxwell Street, Shepparton, two of the four Medill girls were getting ready to attend the concert. Eldest Leslie and youngest Alison weren't planning on going, but the two middle girls, 16-year-old Abina and 14-year-old Rosalind, were. Abina worked in the office admin area at Haywood Panels. She, along with her sisters, were part of a good family who attended the local St Andrews Church. They played badminton and tennis. Abina had a big smile, was very attractive particularly in her vivacious personality, more so than in classic looks. She was very popular and made friends easily. And in recent times, hitting her stride as a 16-year-old, she'd become interested in young men, particularly a certain type of larrikin young bloke. She got herself ready, shoved a packet of Alpine cigarettes into her bag and jumped in the car with her sister Roslyn. Their father, Fred, would drive them to the concert picking up a couple of friends on the way. After picking up Abina's friend, Jan Frost, and then Rosalind's friend, Raylene Croxford, Fred Medill dropped his daughters off near the Civic Centre in Shepparton to attend the Mod Spectacular. Fred was quite a diligent father when it came to ensuring his daughter's safety. Despite it being a concert night and potentially rowdy in town, he wasn't concerned because Abina had recently started seeing a young local boy named Ian Urquhart. Ian was 18 and worked nearby as an apprentice mechanic. He planned to meet Abina a bit later and then walk her home that evening. Ian was a good-natured, jovial young man, small in stature, but had some fire in the belly. He was a prankster, but loved cars and loved his job. He was described as a bit of a workaholic, which is why he was working late this evening. All of this put Fred Medill's mind at ease a bit, as he dropped off his daughters Abina and Rosalind with their friends Jan and Raylene near the concert at around 8.30 that evening. But Abina had other plans too. While Rosalind and Raylene went into the concert as planned, Abina and Jan headed towards the Star Bowl bowling alley. So we've got a pair of youngsters, I say youngsters, young adults really, both who work and are just coming into that enjoyable time in their lives where they're getting a true sense of independence. There might be a white lie here or there to those around them, but nothing more than the majority of us pulled in our youth. This was a fun time, a time I'm sure we can all look back on in our own teenage lives and recall some great nights out and about with our friends. Gary Haywood had been busy since departing home. 
He'd swung by the houses of his mates, Lindsay Lose and Victor Grosdanis, and picked them up. He'd also filled the back seat with his cousin, Paul Haywood, who'd also planned to come along for the night. The four lads had driven around for a while, stopped at a local pub, where Grosdanis, the older-looking of the four, had bought them all beers. After sinking a few pots, the boys were on their way, Grosdanis buying a few more tins for the road to add to their collection of vodka and orange they already had in the car. They drove around some more, eventually pulling up at the Star Bowl bowling alley around 8.30, right before Abina Medill and Jan Frost arrived to meet them. Abina and Jan piled into the car with the four rowdy young men and drove around for a while. The boys had a few more beers and the girls a vodka and orange. After a while, Jan began to feel a little uneasy about the situation. She, like Abina, had a boyfriend and she wanted to go back to the concert, but Abina didn't. In the end, Gary ended up driving everyone back to the Civic Centre where they parked and attended the concert thereafter. Gary was out for a good night. Inside, he tried to kiss a girl and offered another a ride. Harmless teenage stuff, really. Abina, too, was out for a good time. Around 10.30pm, Jan saw her boyfriend, Max Hart. Relieved, she went with him. But Abina stayed and agreed to go with Gary for a drive down to Victoria Lake. Gary's mates weren't keen on him leaving as they'd lose their ride if he didn't come back. So Gary and Abina left a set of keys and wristwatch with them as a surety that they'd return and pick them up later. Gary did come back to the Civic Centre at one point. He was seen by a couple of locals, but it mustn't have lined up with his friend's expected time of return and they simply missed each other. Meanwhile, Ian Urquhart had knocked off for the evening after a long day's work and he'd wandered round to the Taverna Espresso Coffee Lounge to have a hit of caffeine with a few of his mates. After throwing back an espresso or two, Ian left to go and pick up Abina. On the way, he bumped into Abina's sister Rosalyn and her friend Raylene and learnt that Abina had been knocking about with Gary Haywood that evening. Ian would react in a way that would later look a lot worse than it was in reality. The genuine reaction of a teenager in love, blown out of proportion. I'll kill the bastard. I'll belt him, Ian said. Ian and his mates drove around town looking for Abina and Gary, but they couldn't find them. Rosalind eventually went home and I think Abina was meant to have been home around midnight or thereabouts, but she didn't arrive. By this time, Ian and his mates had parked outside the Medills waiting for Abina and Gary to arrive home, when a pair of bright lights pulled up behind them. Ian, fists cocked, erupted from the car, ready to take a swing at Gary Haywood as they emerged from the car, but Ian got a shock and unclenched his fists when he realised it wasn't Gary and Abina but the police who'd pulled up behind them. This was when things turned serious. The Medill family had become very concerned when Abina didn't arrive home, understandably, and Fred had gone over to Charlie Haywood's house and alerted him to the situation as well. The family searched all over town to no avail until 3am when they reported them missing. Constable Frank Eyre and his partner Constable John Quirk received the first report and they suspected something was wrong after initial searches didn't recover the pair. These guys were locals, they knew the families, and they knew this was out of character. Around 5am that morning, the constables were heading back to the station after their night shift of searching when they spotted Gary Haywood's car in Wyndham Street, opposite the lake. The car stood out, obviously, as we said, it was a unique vehicle and known around town. 
but the first thing police noticed was that it was parked roughly, askew, which was strange because Gary was very proud of his car and he wouldn't have treated it like that. Police had a cursory look and noted that the engine was stone cold, so it would have been parked there for some time. But Gary and Abina didn't surface after this discovery. The car was taken and tested, and the disappearance of the two youngsters became a huge story as it hit the headlines. But it wasn't as big as some. The story of their disappearance was soon overshadowed by the national reports of the disappearance of the Beaumont children, which we covered back in episode 15 of True Blue. And I think one element that impacted this was to do with an early theory that the teens had run off together of their own accord. But this never felt right to the families. As we said, Gary would be unlikely to leave his FJ, his pride and joy, and take off someplace, especially when the pair both had a week's pay due to them and hardly a dime to their names. The families felt that something was seriously off, and pretty soon, as time went on and they didn't resurface, people began to fear the worst. Searches around the local area of Shepparton ensued, areas adjacent to where the car was found, I imagine. Police, emergency services, volunteers, dogs, people on horseback, you name it. But ultimately, they found nothing and no trace of what might have happened to the two teenagers. The police investigation went deep, lots of questioning locals, retracing the steps of the teens on the night of their disappearance, and the Shepherd and police were well equipped too. Heading their ranks was former homicide chief Jack Matthews and gun former homicide detective Peter Parkinson, who was a bit of a suave Dick Tracy type, I gathered. Despite these efforts and expertise, nothing came to light. That was until a few days later, when an old Italian bloke named Alfonso Oliveri was riding his bicycle across a bridge a little way out of Shepparton at a spot called Castle Creek. Alfonso spotted a white handbag in or next to a riverbed, just off the Goulburn Valley Highway. It was Abina's handbag. It had some of her identification inside it. So this naturally prompted a full-scale search of the area. The surrounding bush was scoured for clues. Although the creek bed was dry in this area, divers were called in to explore the depths of the area along the creek where the water was present. So after this discovery, foul play really moved up the list and confirmed to everyone what police had been suspecting since the beginning, really. This really pushed Ian Urquhart into the spotlight. His name went right to the top of the suspect list, and for a couple of reasons, obviously being Abina's partner, and the fact that she'd been off during the night alone with another young man gave him motive. Secondly, it came out that Ian had this outburst that we previously mentioned, when he'd learned of all of this, the line, I'll kill the bastard, I'll belt him. Now, as we said, being a young fella in the throes of a new romance, that could have and was more than likely a natural reaction or a throwaway line. But in the context of the disappearance, finding this handbag and now the suspected foul play, it really made things look a lot worse for Ian Urquhart. He was repeatedly grilled by the police, his mates too, And these police and detectives we're talking about are the old-school, hard-nosed kind of guys. So this wasn't a modern-day type of questioning where people's rights were considered. But the police were also considering the possibility that Gary Haywood had killed Abina and taken off. So the Haywoods, too, were getting the rough end of the detective stick. Another detective whose reputation preceded him, like Parkinson, joined the investigation, a bloke by the name of Noel Murphy. Confusing matters even further 
were the scattered reports of sightings of Abena that were being called in. And these were coming from all sorts of areas around Victoria and New South Wales, Mildura, Wodonga, Kerrang and Sydney. But none of these tips, leads or theories led anywhere for the police. Cassidy's Road On the 26th of February 1966, 16 days after Gary and Abena's disappearance, two teenagers named Peter Jacoby and Philip Ashton were shooting on a rural property near Cassidy's Road in Murchison East. Now, this was about 40 kilometres south of Shepparton. Peter's grandparents lived there. The two lads were actually from down in Melbourne's eastern suburbs and they'd caught the train from Spencer Street up to visit during their holidays. The two young men had gone through the Cassidy Farm and some Crown land nearby and they were quite close to the Goulburn River. They were planning to shoot some rabbits and foxes typical fun in the bush for a pair of young blokes, particularly back in this time. As they ventured through the scrub and towering gums overhead, they began to smell a particularly strong odour. Being farmland, the lads likely thought it a deceased animal, a cow or a sheep, but they soon discovered otherwise when they stumbled upon the body of a female. It was that of Abina Medill, though the lads didn't know that at the time, but they could tell she'd met a particularly violent and gruesome end and her body was naked from the waist down. Peter and Philip wasted no time and hightailed it out of there, running up to the Cassidy's property where they alerted the farm owner, Jack Cassidy, of what they'd stumbled upon. Jack called the police immediately, informing them that his neighbour's grandson had found human remains on his property. Police attended promptly and discovered the remains of who they were fairly certain was Abena Medill. Decomposition had well and truly set in, with her body suffering from severe putrefaction and shrinkage from exposure to the hot sun. Her skull was broken, cracked like an eggshell. Around 300 metres away, further into the paddock, police soon discovered the body of Gary Haywood. He was less decomposed due to being in the shade, but his body had bloated severely due to stomach gases. It was apparent to the police Abina had likely been sexually assaulted, having no clothes on from the waist down. She had been bashed to death and they discovered part of a rifle nearby. Gary had been shot once in the temple. Abina's stockings were found nearby too, some 60 to 70 metres away, and they were tied tightly in a loop of 50 centimetres. Fibres found on Gary's pants matched those on the stockings, indicating that his legs had been bound with those stockings. A small pile of neatly folded clothing was also discovered nearby, along with some missing garments of Abina's, namely her skirt, girdle and white shoes. And there were bloodstains prevalent on the stockings and the ground nearby also. But aside from this, there were no clues found indicating the killer's identity. The discovery of the bodies would be the next phase of a tumultuous time for the Medill and Haywood families, as it confirmed everyone's worst fears. I was playing tennis down at the Lawn Tennis Club here and and, uh, the word just whipped around the tennis courts like mad and... (sighs) It was heartbreaking is what it was. It just... You get this physical pain... 
can see you're such a beautiful girl. You don't, you don't know how, what to do or what to say, or you, and you can't feel anything but pain. Leads and dead ends. So now the police were dealing with a full-blown homicide, and they questioned many people but kept coming back to Ian Urquhart. Ian was hounded by not just the police, but the public too. While Shep was a big place, it was still a country town at heart. So the rumour mill was in full swing, and this undoubtedly had a big effect on Ian and his family. But the police needed a result, and they had few leads to pursue. So they roughed up Ian and his mates, Peter Hazelman and Ernie Moore, allegedly hitting, slapping and kicking them in the shins, alongside derogatory comments towards them and their family members. And obviously that was the wrong thing to do and that can't be condoned, but I think the times were a factor here. It's still the 60s and they had two murdered teenagers. But either way you look at it, Ian Urquhart was scared out of his mind and it was said by those close to him wanted to confess despite being innocent. I mean, he'd had more than one mate with him all night, hadn't he? He had left work had coffee with four mates, and they'd been with him while searching for the pair. So it just goes to show the pressure he was under. But although they had few leads, the police did have some physical clues to run down. Obviously, they had a part of what was presumed to be the murder weapon, part of a rifle. They also had some empty shells and the slug from Gary Haywood, so they had the ammunition. With this, they were able to determine the murder weapon was a Mossberg twenty-two rifle. So while that might be a solid lead in the modern day, records back at this time were pretty skint. Police either couldn't find where the gun had come from or they didn't look into it that hard, instead leaning on Urquhart and co for a confession. Inquiries were made on this rifle. They might have had some records, but whatever the case, it didn't lead anywhere. They didn't identify any further suspects or leads from this. It was really just information in the back pocket at this time. A second lead they had, which had surfaced after the forensic examination of Gary Haywood's car, was two fingerprints. They found these above the door. It was a middle and a ring finger. But the prints didn't match any they had on file, nor did they match any of the current suspects they had developed, Urquhart being the prime. So again, information they had, but that led nowhere. Six days after their bodies were found... Gary and Abina were put to rest after services were held at Scott's Church and St Brendan's, respectively. Ian Urquhart attended Abina's funeral, he and his family receiving many dirty looks and comments as he farewelled his girlfriend. On Wednesday the 16th of March, a $10,000 reward was released for information leading to solving the double murder. The police investigation rolled along and we mentioned two of the leads they had being the Mossberg rifle and the two fingerprints, they also had a third lead, and that was a chequered rug that was missing from Gary Haywood's car. This was kept quiet, this rug lead, until the 29th of March 66, when the police went public with the rug after conducting a series of searches of caravans occupied by seasonal workers in the area. This was another point of interest too, the blow-in fruit pickers, A lot of people were sceptical that one of these workers had been responsible for the murders. But although these searches turned up nothing, police did end up getting a lead on the rug, a tip-off from a bloke named Coogan. There's some real old school names in this tale, Chloe. I'm just waiting for Ginger Meggs to make an appearance next. 
But the rug was linked to a couple of blokes. One of them turned out to be in prison, so his alibi was solid. The other turned out to actually have the rug, or at least one very similar, but he too had an ironclad alibi and no idea where he'd gotten the rug. At the end of the day, the rug was a loose end. Testing couldn't conclusively prove anything about this specific rug, couldn't link it to the crime or even determine if it was indeed Gary Haywood's. It wasn't the only false trail police had. There was talk of Gary getting on the wrong side of some drag races in the area. There was a black Holden theory based on a reported sighting. Someone had allegedly seen this car pulled up alongside Gary's FJ the night of their disappearance. Both of these theories were dead ends too. Within a couple of months after the murders, police had interviewed over a thousand people and eliminated a plethora of suspects. But the weight of suspicion, the dirty glances and evil eyes on Ian Urquhart around Shepparton became too overwhelming for him. He was in a spot where he was damned if he stayed, life would be miserable, or if he left, then he was definitely guilty in the public's eyes. Eventually he did leave and went over to Asia, to Singapore specifically. He tried to put the ghosts and suspicion behind him, but it never really left Ian. Sadly, in February of 1972, just six short years later at the age of 24, Ian and a Canadian friend of his died in a car accident at the airport in Singapore. By this time, he'd officially been cleared by police of the Medill Haywood murders, but mud sticks. He was still associated with them. And even one stone-faced, narrow-minded detective commented at Ian's funeral that he'd gotten his just desserts. It was a horrible ordeal and passage of time for Ian and a sad end to his young life. Mens rea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It means literally the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it and all the details with me. Find Mens Rea wherever you get your podcasts. By the mid-1970s, the Medill-Haywood case had gone cold. Between 1971 and 1977, some 160 kilometres away in Melbourne's outer east and southeastern suburbs, a silent moving offender wielding a butcher's knife and a stocking over his head would terrorise and sexually assault dozens of women in their homes. In the working-class suburbs of Donvale, Greensborough, Wheelers Hill and Chelsea Heights, young married couples with children were abundant. And it was during the night, when the kids were down to sleep, that a barefoot prowler who'd been stalking many of these women for weeks on end would strike. Generally, each victim had children in the home when the attacks occurred. On a couple of occasions, there was a young child in the bed with their mother when she was attacked. Don Vale, 26th of July, 1971. Suzanne Y had just finished washing the dishes. It was around 10pm, her children were in bed and her husband was out visiting friends. She walked down the hallway from her kitchen and saw a man who she thought was her husband walking down the hallway. 
but she soon noticed a stocking pulled over the man's face and realised it wasn't her husband at all. The intruder threatened Suzanne with a long butcher's knife and said, Keep quiet and don't scream. First, he asked her for money. Suzanne said they had none as her husband hadn't been paid yet. The masked intruder then said, Well, you better get undressed then. Suzanne explained that she had only just given birth and still had stitches in. The attacker seemingly became nervous, but only briefly. He again asked for money before proceeding to bind Suzanne's wrists and legs with stockings that he'd brought along himself. They weren't hers. He then said, This is so you don't run after me, before sexually assaulting Suzanne in her dining room. Police attended the scene promptly thereafter. Greensboro, 31st of January, 1975. 23-year-old Mrs M was married with two children, It was around 11pm and she decided to go to bed. Her fiancé was away in Sydney at the time and her son was sleeping with her in her bed and her baby daughter was in her cot in her own room across the hall. Around 10 past 4 in the morning, Mrs M heard a rattle. At first, she thought it was just her daughter moving about in her cot, but after it persisted, she got up to inspect the noise. She thought the noise was coming from the laundry opposite her daughter's bedroom. But then a light turned on in the bathroom. In the doorway was a man holding a 12-inch blade above his head. She screamed and he said, Don't scream, I won't hurt you. After spotting the knife, Mrs M noticed the intruder's penis hanging out of his pants. Thinking quickly, she rattled off a story that her girlfriend was staying in the spare room down the hall and having heard the commotion, would likely jump from the window and alert neighbours and subsequently the police. But the intruder knew this was a lie. He'd been in the house before, he told Mrs M, and he knew that her husband was away. He then forced her back into her bedroom, where her son sat up in the bed, petrified. The attacker undressed Mrs M and then himself and forced himself on top of her. He then put a blanket over her son's head and said he wouldn't hurt the kid. After the attack, the police were again alerted and attended. they discover fingerprints at the scene which linked the crime to the 1971 attack in Donvale. Mrs M reported that the man had a distinctive smell, one that she couldn't identify. Greensboro, 30th of July, 1975. At around 10pm, 25-year-old Mrs G was quietly knitting in her lounge room. Her husband was working a night shift. He left around 6pm and their 18-month-old daughter was asleep in her bedroom. It was a blustery evening outside and Mrs G heard the passageway door slam. She turned to look and saw a man standing in the doorway. He walked down the stairs towards her. Mrs G made a break for the front door, but it was locked. She fumbled trying to unlock it and the intruder came up behind her and closed it. He said he didn't want to hurt her, but she saw the 10-inch knife in his hand. Mrs G was too scared to say anything and worried about her daughter in the room nearby. Then the man said... I just want to make love to you. He kissed her on the neck and said, I've been watching you. Have you been seeing me? She said no. Then he pulled her shirt down and told her to undress, trying to reassure her that he wasn't going to hurt her. Mrs G, still frightened but no longer paralysed with fear, found her tongue. Don't you know any girls? The attacker nodded. Yes, but I like you. Mrs G tried a similar tactic to the one we previously mentioned, saying that her husband was due home imminently. 
but the attacker knew he wouldn't be home until later. Wednesday nights were the only nights Mrs G's husband was out. It was obvious this man had been watching the house for weeks. After the assault, police again attended and found no fingerprints, but footprints, confirming this attacker was indeed barefoot. A neighbour also got a look at the man after he fled the scene and provided a good description to police. Chelsea Heights, 14th of February, 1977. 37-year-old Mrs D was having a quiet night at home. Her husband was on night shift and her eldest daughter was out in the city. She also had two younger boys who were both in bed by 2am when her daughter arrived back home. Mrs D waited up for her before going to bed herself. Mrs D's youngest three-year-old boy was asleep in her bed with her. At some point during the night, she was disturbed from her sleep. She thought it was her son waking up at first, but quickly noticed the light in the bedroom was on. She then saw a man with a stocking over his head walking towards her. Don't make a noise, I'm going to rape you, he said. Mrs D told him that she had her period, to which the attacker said, That's all right. He then undressed her and began touching her breasts and kissing her stomach, saying that he'd been watching her for months. Mrs D was beyond frightened, especially for her son lying in the bed next to them. After the attack, in a moment of automated shock, she made herself a cup of coffee before calling the police. Again, fingerprints were found linking the attacks. It appeared the Donval rapist had moved south. Mrs D too described an odour her attacker had, one that she couldn't quite put her finger on. There were many more attacks than this, around 32 in total it was reported during this six or seven years. Some victims reported the rapist had a Scottish or Northern English accent, while others were sure he was Australian. Police investigating at the time led with the Scottish accent information in trying to track down the perpetrator. A dummy or bust, they termed it, was created of the attacker, based on the victim's descriptions and that of the neighbour we mentioned, who spotted the man fleeing one of the scenes. This dummy had auburn hair in a comb-over style, with a pasty complexion and a paunchy pot belly. The press conference where the dummy was displayed made national headlines when it linked the series of attacks in Melbourne's Outer East and South East. The nickname. Victims had described their attacker as having a variety of odours. Some said he had a sharp, nasty chemical smell like ammonia, diesel or petrol. Others mentioned stale cigarette smoke and one reported distinctive body odour. In the hustle and bustle of a Melbourne newsroom at the Sunday Press, Chief Sub-Editor Lyle Corliss and journalist Steve O'Bore were searching for the perfect headline grab for this article on the case. They were trying to come up with a nickname for the offender. Another sub-editor suggested Pongo, which Corliss promptly shot down. O'Bourne then came up with Mr Smelly, which was close but no cigar. Then Corliss jotted down on his notepad, Mr Stinky. To become the headline, Mr Stinky gets top billing. The fact that he was labelled the most wanted and vicious criminal in the country at that time. Mr Stinky fit the space and number of letters they had to print, so they ran with it. The nickname caught on like wildfire, and it stuck. And I think it's one thing that we've gotten right, Chloe, here in Australia with this nickname. There's a meme kicking around on the internet that says, 
we shouldn't glorify serial killers with cool nicknames. You've seen that one, right? Yeah. And it puts forward some examples like Timmy the dipshit murderer or Martin the micropenis maniac, something along those lines. Much more satisfying. Yeah, so I think we got it right with Mr. Stinky because it's a shit nickname and it makes you think the guy reeked of BO instead of labelling him, you know, the, the barefoot prowler or something like that, which I'm sure um, Scott Pape is pretty happy about as well. But despite all of this widespread media coverage linking the dozens of rapes, the investigation went nowhere in the short term until the early 80s. The fingerprints. Into the 80s, and the police had built up by this time a set of composite fingerprints named the Donvale Rapist slash Mr Stinky. And these were a physical set of prints in the file. There were no computers in use by Victoria Police at this time. In June of 1982, at the Victoria Police Fingerprint Bureau, fingerprint expert Sergeant Andy Wall was reviewing cold cases. The department had a top five board of notorious prints. This was like a cardboard cutout, and all of the members would look at it, I guess as kind of like reinforcing or a motivational tool to keep the big cases and prints linked to those cases in their minds. On July 12, 1982, Wall was reviewing a file, going through some old dog-eared photographs and prints, and he came across two fingerprints associated with an old Shepparton case from the 1960s, the murders of Abina Medill and Gary Haywood. Wall recognised the prints. Something about the loops or arches in them stood out in Wall's mind. There was just two prints, a middle finger and a ring finger, but Wall had a hunch. He'd seen these prints before. He dug out the file he was looking for and compared the prints. And sure enough, he linked two distinctively different crimes. The prints matched that of the Donvale Rapist. Wall had discovered this match with nothing more than the human eye, a highly trained human eye, might I add, but pre-computers, completely manual analysis. So this was huge because it showed that the Donvale Rapist, Mr Stinky, was at the very least present at the time of the Medill Haywood murders and more than likely the actual killer they'd been hunting for over 15 years by this time. But they didn't know who the offender was. He wasn't in the system they had at the time. So in May 1983, a task force was set up to find out who these prints belonged to. Police tried extremely hard with the resources and technology they had available to them at the time. However, they were unsuccessful. It'd be another two years until they'd catch their luckiest break of all. So this next bit is my absolute favourite part of this story. March the 16th, 1985, and this was around midday, Pat Halpin was working the cash register at the Walton's department store in Kiwa Street, Albury. It was fast approaching her lunch break. She gazed out the window at the front of the store and saw a man sitting in his white Ford station wagon. She kind of vaguely recognised the auburn-haired man, with thick forearms and a pot belly, wearing a blue singlet and shorts. Perhaps this guy had been a customer at some point. The man had his seat tilted right back. When Pat looked again, he seemed agitated, this man, and he was whacking the steering wheel. His behaviour seemed odd and she looked a bit harder. 
And it turned out it wasn't just the steering wheel he was whacking. Pat looked on in shocked amusement and called out to John Arnett, who worked in the menswear section nearby. He came over and asked Pat what she was smiling about. And Pat replied, Have a look. This bloke's giving himself a real going over. John glanced out of the window and looked out at the station wagon and sure enough, as Pat said, this man in the car was indeed playing with himself. The pair watched, probably a bit stunned, and agreed he was up to no good. Then a pair of young females pull up behind the station wagon. They got out and walked past the car and the man inside didn't even try to hide what he was doing. The women were disgusted and power walked past his car. But when the occasional male walked past, the man threw a handkerchief over his lap to conceal himself. By now, assistant store manager Brian Huxley and store manager Alan Chapman had wandered over, and it was the last thing they wanted to see out the front of their store, some bloke doing that to himself, understandable. I'm not sure if anyone knows Kiwa Street in Albury, but it's a pretty main thoroughfare. Not a quiet little country town side street, even back in the mid-80s. I imagine any store owner would be mortified to see some red-faced bloke puffing and puffing in his vehicle outside of their place of business. So the Walton's employees phoned the police and three local coppers, Glenn Taylor, Kevin Savage and Peter Kemmings, arrived on scene promptly. They parked around the corner and approached the station wagon, probably right around the time as this public masturbator was hitting the vinegar stroke. The coppers were pretty straight up with him, I inferred. What the fuck are you doing, mate? Put it away. Fuck you. That kind of thing. I mean, what else do you say to a bloke who's sitting there in his car in the main drag in broad daylight, yanking it like a monkey in a mango tree? The man was quite meek and mild-mannered at first. When the police queried who he was, he identified himself as Raymond Edmonds. He pleaded ignorance and said he'd never done anything like this before. So one of the coppers, I think it was Peter Kemmings, drew the short straw of fingerprinting when they got back to the station. Obviously, they made Edmonds wash his hands before completing this task. Edmonds was charged with willful and obscene exposure. At this time, probably a slap on the wrist offence, particularly for a first-timer. Edmonds was seemingly just that. He hadn't been fingerprinted before. He was in his early 40s and, to all appearances, a regular knockabout kind of guy. A share farmer, probably a good bloke, down on his luck. He was bailed to appear at court, which he did, and pleaded guilty to the offence. But his prints, which were routinely taken, as was the law in New South Wales at the time, they were sent up to Fingerprint Central in Sydney, New South Wales. The prints were processed there, and lo and behold, another detective with a hawk eye noticed that these prints looked familiar. He'd seen them some eight months ago when a couple of Victorian detectives had been up. This detective's name was Ray Butterfield, and again, just with the human eye, this guy, like Andy Wall, had the expert knowledge and skills to commit these prints to memory. And it was two things that stood out about these prints. One was the defined index fingers, two was a little scar on one of the little fingers. Butterfield compared the prints of this guy, Raymond Edmonds, with a composite set of Mr Stinky, and they 100% matched. So the Central Fingerprint Bureau alerted Vic Pohl. Obviously, they were beside themselves with finally having their man. And here's the kicker, Chloe. This is the best part about this for me. Not only do you have two experts, pre-computers, linking and solving this with nothing more than the trained human eye, you also have this second interesting factor. 
Albury is the sister city to Wodonga, for those who don't know. They're similarly sized, big regional inland cities straddling the Vic New South Wales border. Albury's in New South Wales, Wodonga's in Victoria. And while they're separate cities for out-of-towners, they're often mentioned in the same breath, Albury-Wodonga. There's very little that separates the places in terms of the demographics and the distance. They're extremely close. Routine fingerprinting was mandatory in New South Wales at the time, but it wasn't in Victoria. So if Edmonds had been jerking his chain just five minutes down the road in Wodonga instead of Albury, there's every chance he would have gotten a clip around the ears and sent on his way. His prints wouldn't have been taken and he wouldn't have been linked to these heinous crimes. So for me, that's the best part. Alongside the fact it was him quite literally being a wanker that brought about his downfall. But before we get into how Vic Pohl made their move on Mr Stinky and all that transpired thereafter, let's take a moment to answer the question, who was Raymond Edmonds? The Everyday Maniac. Raymond Edmonds was born on the 12th of March 1944 at Queen Victoria Hospital. He was adopted at birth by his parents Mavis and Harold. Edmonds didn't know his biological parents. It was suggested that his mother was very young and had fallen pregnant to who was an enemy soldier from Europe at that time. Mavis had married Harold in the late 1930s, and they'd been unable to conceive children. The couple had bought a farm north of Myrtleford in northern country Victoria. It was gruelling work for young Mavis on the farm. She'd often be left with arduous hours and days of work while Harold travelled, doing livestock deals and other business ventures, allegedly. And we say allegedly because half the time Harold wasn't really doing what he said. He was known around town as a skirt chaser. That was the phrase used at the time. Harold frequented hotels between Myrtleford and Albury. When Mavis would leave for Melbourne to visit her mother, Harold would simultaneously leave and be gone for days doing God knows what with whoever he could. Mavis knew and even caught Harold one time, throwing a jug at him when she did. So this was Ray's parents, a doting mother, albeit head in the sand when it came to Harold, her egomaniac, much older husband. It was a strange dynamic that Ray was born into. He showed no signs of anything at a young age. The words that were repeated about young Raymond Edmonds over and over were ordinary, didn't stand out, followed by the occasional, he was a bit off though but he showed no outward signs of evil. The family moved around regional Victoria a bit in Ray's younger years, bought and flipped a small place near Wangaratta. Harold then bought a bakery in Mansfield and they stayed there for a bit. A few years later again, Harold had sold the bakery and bought 300 acres near Chilton, where Ray would begin primary school. A few years later again, they sold the acreage and moved into a small weatherboard in town, which coincidentally was previously occupied by a future notorious criminal named Raymond Chuck Bennett. He allegedly masterminded the infamous Great Bookie robbery of Melbourne in 1976. In his six years at Chilton State School, Ray made no really close friends, and again the same words stand out when explaining him. Ordinary, average, not completely normal, but nothing stood out. He wasn't said to be dull, just the sort of bloke who was always one out and not part of the crew, a bit of a loner. But that alone didn't hint at the future paths Ray would take. By his adolescence, Ray was going to high school in Myrtleford near the family farm and he'd begun to shed his puppy fat of his pre-teenage years 
and turned into a bit of a burly-looking Elvis-inspired rocker. Still one out to most blokes, he wasn't the kind to have mates, indeed he rubbed most lads up the wrong way, but the occasional female found the stocky Popeye-armed Edmund somewhat attractive. Make no mistake though, he was no oil painting. Two strange things happened to Raymond around this time. Firstly, it was reported that he had persistent bedwetting until his early teens. That doesn't need much further analysis. Secondly, it was said that a doctor who'd treated Raymond for the bedwetting had done two things. One, discovered he only had one testicle, something he'd kept very quiet his whole life. And two, this doctor ended up prescribing Raymond the wrong medication for his bedwetting. Instead of him prescribing a drug that treated the bedwetting, this doctor administered a drug that induced, heightened and sped up the onset and effects of puberty. How the hell that happened, I'm not sure. Apparently that doctor's no longer with us. It's also unclear if it was a single dosage of this wrong drug given to Ray, or if it was for an extended period, script after script. And that's an important factor, obviously, but it's something we just don't know. Later into his teens, Ray did make some mates, and became a typical knockabout youngster. He got into girls and guns, both popular pastimes and consuming thoughts for teenage boys in regional Victoria during this time. Ray and some mates got into some petty criminal activity, nothing too serious, some break-ins and the like. But Ray's interest in girls wasn't like the other lads his age. It was something he didn't brag about, but kept very separate from the exterior he put on, almost secretive. Even Ray's mum, Mavis, confided in a friend that Ray seemed way too oversexed for his age. So there were obviously some outward signs pointing to this for his mum to notice. In 1959, Ray got a local girl pregnant. She was forced to give up the baby for adoption, and in the midst of this, perhaps out of anger, she told Ray that he was adopted. It appeared as though this was the town's worst-kept secret, but even into his mid-teens, Ray didn't know this. And the impact these two things had on him, we can't be sure, but it's safe to say they're potentially life-altering occurrences, finding out that you're adopted and having to give away your child, as his mother had done with him. Ray got branded as bad company after this, and the family eventually moved to a farm near Cobram. Around this time, on a trip to Melbourne with his mum to visit his grandmother, Another strange occurrence happened to Ray that likely had a big impact on his increasing sex drive. Apparently on this visit, Ray met a couple of older women. Who they were and how they came to know him, we're not clear on, but I gathered they were somehow known to his grandmother or perhaps lived with her for a time. Whatever the case, these older women were lesbians and one of them was bisexual. She apparently seduced Ray into having sex with her while her partner observed and applauded from the sidelines. This went on for a while, the three of them having relations together. This all arose out of Ray peeping at her in the shower, apparently, and kind of snowballed from there. But anyway, they were showing Ray things that he'd never seen before. And all was apples until one point, Ray tried it on with the woman and she resisted him. Things really turned at this point. Ray didn't take no for an answer and forced the older woman to meet his demands. So these two ladies had inadvertently taken this loner, oversexed farm boy and given him something that he'd not had before. And it made a mark. Ray had gone from a horny teenager to having a voracious sexual appetite after this, it was said. Marriage number one. In 1960, Ray met a girl named Leslie in nearby Yarrawonga. 
Ray was 16, Leslie 15 at this time. What started out as any other romance soon turned into a rut, a sour marriage, an early pregnancy and a spate of moves across regional Victoria. Ray job-hopped, left the nest of home, much to his father's disappointment. He wanted him to take over the family farm, but Ray ended up share farming, doing farmhand duties on other people's farms across northern Victoria. From 1960 to 1966, Ray and Leslie had three children, and it was a volatile and abusive relationship. Ray was a domestic abuser. He was very violent towards Leslie on occasion, seemingly cared little for his kids, and was constantly off having affairs with other women. Ray demanded sex from Leslie constantly, and he got it. Meanwhile, what happened behind closed doors didn't match up with the burly, strong farmer he was by day. Ray often impressed the people he worked for with his brute strength. Ray and Leslie moved through Stanhope, Tongala, and eventually to Ardmona by 1964, where they got work on a farm of a family named Gorns. Ardmona is a stone's throw from Shepparton, and Ray and Leslie remained here until 1966, the year Abina Medill and Gary Haywood were murdered. During this time, there were many nighttime disturbances in the Ardmona region. This takes us back to the start, with the peeping Tom and the young farmer named Jack, who heard the barefoot prowler at his property on numerous occasions over the summer of 65 and 66. Leslie and Ray broke up many times, with Leslie leaving with the kids on a few occasions, but usually finding her way back, before eventually leaving again. As we said, Ray was with other women on a regular basis, and Leslie caught him red-handed doing this too. But he was also in this habit of going out for extended periods in the evening into the early hours of the morning. Ray made friends with the young man on the farm, Stuart Gorns. The pair had a love of guns and went shooting together. Indeed, it was Gorns's shed that police would inspect years later and find another missing piece of a Mossberg 22 that Gorns noted belonged to a share farmer they had some 20 years ago, a bloke named Ray. They'd also find some old shells on the Gorns property where Stuart and Ray had been shooting, and these matched the slugs found at the Medill Haywood murder scene. By 1968, things were over between Ray and Leslie. She'd had enough of his shit and eventually, after many tries, had successfully broken away from him. She eventually married a fellow named Gerald, a bloke who was said to be the opposite of Ray in every way, so good on her. Marriage number two. But Ray had moved on, in a more open fashion anyway. He always had one foot in and one foot out. He'd mesmerised a young 20-year-old woman named Colleen by this time in 1968, and they'd eventually wind up together, again moving across regional Victoria share farming. Colleen had two children of her own, and she was encouraged by her parents to go with Ray. From 1969 to 1971, Ray and Colleen and their kids, five of them, would reside in, wait for it, Tangambalanga, the hometown of one Ashley Coulston, better known for its dairy farming, which Ray was a pro at. I don't know how Ray ended up with the kids and not Leslie. That wasn't clear to me. But anyhow, Colleen was now on the receiving end of Ray's physical punishment and his philandering. She, like Leslie Pryor, felt the unrelenting domestic abuse of the man, which wasn't just physical, but emotional and financial too. Ray even beat a dog to death at one stage around this time. Colleen and Ray had a son together, taking their combined brood to six, and moved to Richmond. 
With the help of friends and family, they landed a place here in Melbourne's east, and from 1971 through to 1980, they moved around in these parts, eventually ending up in Chelsea Heights in the southeast. And this was during the period of time that the Donvale, Wheelers Hill, Greensboro and Chelsea Heights rapes would occur. Ray worked various jobs, usually on dairy farms, but briefly as a conductor working on the city trams. By 1980, word was out that Ray had molested his 16-year-old daughter Susan. Of course, Ray denied this, and it took a while for people to sort of believe her story, band together, and for Ray to get charged and summoned to court. But for whatever reason, Ray never saw his day in court and simply slipped through the cracks in the system. By 1980, He'd abandoned his family and moved to Singleton in New South Wales. In the time after this, he got a job as a private investigator, but in reality he was basically more of a security guard or night patrolman. Again, I think he ended up back on a dairy farm working his usual trade. But this is the interesting thing that ties in with the Tynon case last week. He must have moved back to Victoria at some point in the next little while, because although he got caught in 1985, giving himself a once-over in Albury, and now we know why, with his sexual appetite, bloke couldn't go through his lunch break without getting the urge, but he was working in a factory in the Victorian suburb of Hyatt at this time, and he was staying in nearby Mordialic. So he was back down in the area in the early to mid-1980s. I wonder how long he even stayed in Singleton, New South Wales, or if he even truly left Victoria. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Just six days after his prints were matched to the Donvale Rapist and subsequently the Medill Haywood murders, police swooped on a factory in Hyatt and arrested Raymond Edmonds. Police had been surveilling him and picked him up at the aforementioned Morty Alec address, followed him to Hyatt, where he was approached by police in the petitioned office in the factory. Edmonds was polite. Come in, gentlemen. What can I do for you? It was ten to eight, the start of the working day, and the police were looking at a dead ringer for the dummy of Mr Stinky. Round-shouldered, pot-bellied but powerful, thick forearms, blue singlet, shorts and work boots, greying hair that still had some of its original auburn. So the police arrested him and took him in for questioning. 
It was said that Edmonds didn't show a flicker of emotion when arrested. He was compliant, but he didn't sweat, didn't protest, didn't even bat an eyelid when they told him his prints had been found at the double murder scene. Fair enough, Edmonds said. He chatted fairly casually about his marriages and working life with police as they went back to the station. Police had a six-hour window with which to work and hopefully elicit a confession from Edmonds. And get to work they did. A string of denials from Edmonds came after all of the sexual assaults were put to him. But with the evidence clearly mounted against him, he eventually folded and said, Get me a priest and I'll tell you everything. Now a string of confessions began, but even these were still riddled with lies and omissions from Edmonds. The only truth that came from his mouth was when he said, I must be sick in the head. I think I need destroying. He laid out this entire false trail for himself in life, gave false details everywhere he went, whether it was his name, address, or his working history. So it stands to reason Raymond Edmonds believed his own lies. So it was detectives and ballistics that solved this case, and not the old school detectives who dragged Ian Urquhart and his mates in and gave them a hiding. Edmonds wouldn't have been apprehended at all if it wasn't for the expertise of the likes of Andy Wall and Ray Butterfield. They had him in the areas, a dead ringer for the suspect dummy, fingerprints, and the rifle and ballistics link for the Medill Haywood murders. On the 3rd of April 1986, Edmonds was in the Melbourne Supreme Court on two counts of murder, three of rape, two of attempted rape. Although he initially pleaded not guilty, he ultimately changed his plea to guilty and was sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. Links. As the face of Mr Stinky came out and the story of Raymond Edmonds became known to Australians, as with all offenders like this, they're subsequently looked at as persons of interest in other unsolved crimes. We've touched on him in relation to the Tynong North Frankston murders last week. We're going to look at a few others now. Now, we harped on a bit about Ashley Coulston potentially being Australia's Golden State killer. But, Chloe, I think we have to admit while the comparison has legs factoring the MO, it pales in comparison to what's been alleged of Raymond Edmonds. Absolutely. While 32 sexual assault victims and two murder victims have been officially linked, it's been theorised in some sources that Raymond Edmonds could have committed up to 100 rapes and have a murder victim count well into double figures. Edmonds even said to a fellow prison inmate, If they knew how many women I'd killed, they'd neck me. Or words to that effect. The murder of Bronwyn Richardson. Bronwyn was a 17-year-old woman who was found murdered on the 14th of October 1973. Her body was found in the Murray River, seven kilometres west of Albury. She'd been raped, bashed and strangled. She disappeared in the evening of October 12th from outside a church in Smollett Street, Albury, St. Patrick's Church. She was waiting for a friend of her boyfriend to come and pick her up and drive her to Corowa after she'd finished her shift at the nearby Coles supermarket. A coronial inquest in the time after Bronwyn's murder identified her ex-boyfriend, Geoffrey Brown, and his friend, Ross Eames, as persons of interest. It was said that Bronwyn called things off 18 months earlier, and Brown had trouble accepting that. Two more men were said to be present when Bronwyn was raped and murdered, Max Martin and Kevin Newman. Both of them are now deceased. 
Brown was eventually charged with murder, but charges were ultimately dropped due to lack of evidence. Then, in recent times, Chloe, a guy named Colin Newey was charged with Bronwyn's murder after apparently making a call to police in 1989 in which he implicated himself. Newey was living in Murray Bridge, South Australia at the time. We've heard about that town before. He might have been around the corner from John Bunting at one point. But again, charges against Newey were ultimately dropped due to lack of evidence. So what does all this have to do with Mr Stinky? Well, he was linked in a television program back in 1989. That's when Newey rang the police after viewing this program and he rang in to say that it wasn't Stinky at all. But neither Newey or the aforementioned ex-boyfriend and his acquaintances ever had charges stick and went to trial. We know Edmund's style. We know he knew Albury and travelled seemingly at will between the region and Melbourne's outer east. But if that doesn't float your boat, Bronwyn's shoe and handbag were found nearby to her body. And interestingly, there was also a bundle of her clothes, folded very neatly in a similar way to that of Abina Medill some seven years earlier. The Disappearance of Eloise Wallage Eloise, an eight-year-old girl from Beau Morrison, Victoria, was abducted from her home on the 12th of January, 1976. Her four-year-old brother alerted their parents and subsequently the police. He claimed to have heard people taking Eloise and he didn't say anything for fear of them taking him too. The main clues to Eloise's abduction were torn or a cut flywire screen, and some bark from a tree outside found inside her room. Other than that, there were no signs of struggle. Theories ranged from it being someone who knew Eloise and had lured her from her room out the front door, to a prowler walking in the house and taking her, and finally, to the parents being responsible. Raymond Edmonds, despite this one not seeming like his style, he had molested his daughter, who was admittedly a bit older, and he lived around the area in this time. Indeed, it was in the midst of his horrifying rape spree. The murder of Elaine Jones. On January the 3rd, 1980, 39-year-old Elaine and her husband, 51-year-old Alan, were camping at Tokenwall Caravan Park on the New South Wales-Victorian border. They'd stayed here for every Christmas New Year period for 18 years, it was said. Elaine went for a walk to the local shops that night around 9.30pm, to get some cigarettes and chocolate, but she never returned back to their camp. The next morning, Alan went searching for Elaine, taking his seven-year-old daughter Jennifer with him. They had a 15-year-old daughter named Nita too. Presumably she went looking in another direction. Alan ended up finding his wife's body downstream in the river after spotting her shoe snagged on a protruding branch. He dragged her body into the boat. Her throat had been slit from ear to ear, so deep it exposed her spine. And this part is absolutely tragic, Chloe, this next bit. If it wasn't enough already. Alan covered Elaine's body with life jackets while their daughter Jennifer was still in the boat with him. And then Alan, who'd suffered heart problems for years, had a massive coronary and died. Seven-year-old Jennifer circled around in the boat out of control for several minutes before she managed to swim ashore a gallery of mortified onlookers helping her and retrieving the boat with the two bodies on it. Just tragic that these two girls lost both of their parents in these circumstances within one day. Elaine had been sexually assaulted and bashed with a blunt object. Indeed, these head injuries are what killed her. 
The issue with this case was that due to the popularity of the otherwise small town at this time of year, the population had gone from 1,300 to 10,000 almost overnight. Holidayers, seasonal workers, you name it. There were several persons of interest, but Raymond Edmonds, many years later, became one of these for obvious reasons. It was said that he was camping across the border from Tokenwall at this very time, and the MO was extremely similar. And this kind of area has his name all over it, regional Victoria on the New South Wales border. These are but a few that we've found where Edmonds is linked, plus the Tynong North Frankston case, as we said. But there could be many, many more victims of Mr Stinky. The actions of Raymond Edmonds in 1966 had a profound effect on this area in that people, we didn't feel safe anymore. My thoughts were that I would like to get in the ring with him with no gloves and no one steps in. That was, that was a hatred that I had and, and today I'd do the same. But back then it was raw. It was bloody raw. For what he did, the pressure that he put on all the kids in Shep I would have liked to have throttled him. My brother Ian was badly affected by what had happened. Being an innocent party, it drove him out of that town and he was driven to a life of loneliness. Recent times. In 1992, Edmonds tried to escape from Pentridge Prison he was found hidden in a small steel cabinet on the back of a semi-trailer, which had already cleared one checkpoint. A prison dog named Sarge found him and barked the house down, alerting guards. So, thanks to Sarge for foiling that one. And Chloe, just recently, September of 2019, Edmonds was in the headlines again, facing charges on further counts of rape, indecent assault, assault and false imprisonment between 1971 and 1984. He pleaded guilty to those, 10 charges in total, I understand, and copped an additional 23 years. So justice served for those victims, in a sense. A lot of those earlier mentioned sexual assaults in the Donvale, Wheelers Hill, Greensborough areas, etc., they were included in these recent sentences. But whatever way you slice it and dice it, Raymond Edmonds is never going to see the light of day again. And that's a wrap, Chloe. That's it. That's the case of the notorious Mr. Stinky. Well, yeah, um, what a guy. I can't help but think about nature versus nurture in this case as well, that there were some things mentioned early on that potentially led to Raymond being the way that he was, but you've got to think that biology had something to do with this, that this guy was born evil. He just had to be to do the things that he did. And I find these crimes so scary terrifying because of the sheer disregard for anything else. The fact that his victims often had children in the house particularly, to me, just screams that this person was so focused on the power trip or domination over the people and that nothing else mattered. Saying that, someone who can do these despicable things to me is so scary, full stop. And I'm not saying that his actions were a strategic thing. I don't give his intelligence that much credit. The smell that inspired his moniker shows that unlike some of the repeat offenders who show some kind of self-awareness to know that a pungent, foul smell is going to be an indicator to victims or 
might tip off law enforcement. He didn't seem to have that. These acts were obviously disgusting, and to say I'm sorry for the people involved doesn't seem like enough, but I am. It's such a vast trail of destruction that I honestly have a hard time thinking about it for too long. My final thought on this case is that I hope we never see another Mr Stinky or anyone like him ever again. Sean, your thoughts? So this is a guy who's shown no remorse. He's not played ball since being incarcerated. He's denied involvement in anything else. I think we could be looking, I feel like a bit of a broken record saying this, Chloe, but I think we don't know half of what this guy has done. He could potentially be our worst serial offender in our country's history. This guy was terrifying. You go back to the rapes and it was every bit as terrifying as the East Area Rapist. The prowling, stalking for extended periods, attacking with children in the bed next to their mothers, as you said, um, some of them even pregnant. Uh, just despicable. The amount of people affected by this guy is just insane. The families of those lost, the survivors, it's just so hard to comprehend. This guy is literally a wanker and he got caught wanking. That was great. That was my favorite part about this. And the way it was solved to me was just fascinating. Exceptional police work. Some great luck, as we said, with the New South Wales Victoria border thing with the mandatory fingerprinting at the time. It was lucky he was north of the border and not down here in Mexico. And the smell, well, it it was said to be an offensive mixture of milk, manure and chemicals from his farming work. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. A more apt moniker for one of these sick douchebags there could not be. Mr. Stinky. Yeah, so after that, we definitely need happy thoughts this week. Um, Thanks to everyone who shared happy thoughts with us this week in our Facebook group. It was so good, and there were so many dog-related ones. Yes, there was. It was great. (laughs) That should be good inspo for you, Sean, when you aren't on Patreon doing your favourite segment, the airing of grievances anyway. (laughs) Um, Even though we got so many good suggestions and they all made me super happy this week, my happy thought is that it's my birthday tomorrow and my husband's on Friday. And since we are 30 years old (laughs) and we live in Melbourne, that means heaps of good food. So I'm pretty excited for the weekend. Have you got anything specifically planned in terms of the food? Probably your worst nightmare. I'm going to a winery-based place uh, one night and then I'm going to a vegan pizza place on Friday night. (laughs) So I'm really excited about both of them. Well, that probably leads into my happy thought where I am absolutely stoked that it's your birthday, another year, that we get to be friends. I'm I'm also wrapped that you didn't invite me to the vegan place. That's that's great. (laughs) That is not your happy thought. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not, but I do appreciate that. My happy thought for this week is that we're really coming, not on top top of your birthday, obviously, we're coming into that sort of Christmas period now where Christmas parties are being planned. It's starting to get a little bit festive. You know, I was telling you I had to organize my one for my work. So um, I used to be a bit of a Scrooge about Christmas, but since having kids, I really enjoy it now. I really, probably the last sort of four or five years I've gotten into it. Magic's back. Yeah, we're coming into that festive season it's going to be good. That's, That's my happy exciting. thought. Yep. If you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels and much more to come. I think we've got a blooper reel coming out maybe around about now. Yeah, I'm still nervous about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show. Well, that was Epic Chloe. We made it. Uh, Thanks again for listening, everyone. We appreciate it and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.